Amen. The gospel and the song right there. Thank you, choir. Man, sounding great. For a church of our size to have a choir like that is really a special thing. Thank you, Aaron, and choir for your leadership. What a beautiful song. Love so amazing that it demands everything from us. The gospel demands our everything. And the cool thing is, when we give our lives up for that love, we gain our lives. We find, we gain by losing. When we offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice on the altar, we find our actual identity and our true life, the life that we were meant to live. The more that we die to ourselves, the more we truly flourish and thrive. Thank you, choir, for reminding us of that gospel truth. Today, we're going to finish up a two-month series we've been in on our mission, vision, and values here at Woodmont. We've been talking about this uh, conference that our staff, five of our staff members went to and kind of rolled out this vision over the last 18 months. And, you know, I told you guys at the beginning of this series, I'm as, as skeptical as anyone when it comes to mission, vision, and values, okay? I hear those phrases a lot. There's a hundred books probably on my shelf alone about these kinds of things. I think that often in, you know, companies or churches that mission, vision, and values can just be code words for some kind of flashy marketing campaign, you know, and that's not what we're trying to do here. The thing about this series is I, I actually believe it. I, I actually think it's true and right and good. And more importantly than that, I actually think that the five of us over a three-day period in a small room at Judson Baptist Church at this conference actually heard a word from the Lord. You play the God card, that's, that's saying something. I actually believe that the Lord spoke to us and helped us to understand what Woodmont's purpose, what our vision for our future, and what our values are at that conference. That's a bold claim, I, I know. But I actually believe that these mission, vision, and values also are clearly identified in God's word, and that means we can stand firmly on them. I also believe that if we commit ourselves to these things, if we actually will believe them and actually build our ministries and all that we do upon these things, that we will actually be a healthy church that does great things for the Lord and for his kingdom, that we will see lives transformed and changed for eternity. We're in the billion-year investment process of seeing lives changed for eternity. We will be effective in God's kingdom. We'll faithfully play our part in his redemptive purposes for Nashville and for the world. We talked about how our mission, our, our purpose, has been given to us from the, the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. He gave us a great commission and two great commandments upon which we, we see these three core mission uh, imperatives. To love the Lord with all that we are, every part of our being, withholding nothing from him, and then to love our neighbors as ourselves, and then to make disciples of Christ. That's our mission. That's the great commandments and the great commission. The youth have been memorizing this. This is what it means to be a part of the family of God, is to be about this purpose. This is the, the point of everything that we do should serve these three things. So what does that look like for Woodmont in our context right now? Well, that's our vision. Our vision is to bring hope and healing to our neighbors and to the world. 
We really want to see lives changed again for the next billion years as they change their eternal destiny and that we go out of this place commissioned by the Holy Spirit to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, to, to help bring the transforming power of the gospel to those who need it most. We want to grow more outward focus this year as, as our hearts start to break for the things that break God's heart that we would care about the 40,000 people who drive by our church every day, most of whom, I would guess, are lost and searching. And that leads us to our values. What kind of church are we? What are our core values? Well, we value worship highly, as I think you just saw with the choir. We want everyone involved in singing. If you don't know a song, that's, that's okay. Sing it, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. You know, I heard someone say that if, if kids don't see their parents sing, they won't sing either. They'll never learn to sing. We want everyone engaged in worship. We want everyone to see and to savor Jesus Christ as supremely, infinitely better than anything else in this world. That is to love the Lord our God with all that we are. We value prayer. Many of you don't know, but we still kind of have an old-fashioned Wednesday night prayer meeting at midweek. We go over the prayer needs and we pray. We pray for our people because we believe that prayer changes things. We believe that prayer is our lifeline to an endless reserve of power through the Holy Spirit. We believe what James 5 says, that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. The King James says they availeth much. It's true. So we value prayer. And then in a pluralist society, we, we value truth. We stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Not as angry fundamentalists, that's not who we are, but as loving, gracious, prophetic minority who speak the word of truth into a confused and lost culture. And then last week, we, we talked about how we value family both families in the home and, and parents and children and singles, but also the fact that we are a family of faith. We're gonna work to get to know each other. This morning in finance committee meeting, we were talking about how we always overspend the fellowship line item in our budget, and we just keep increasing it, and they all said, that's great. Let's keep raising it. We wanna spend more on fellowship because we want to get to know each other better as a family of faith. I'm looking forward, I had some great ideas from folks after the message last week about getting together around tables and how we can uh, join as a family and, and eat and break bread together and just be unified as God's family, as his children. I'm excited about doing more of that in the future. We talked about how we don't go to church, we are a church. Church is not an event, it's a family. I believe that firmly. And that leads us to our final value today, which is mission. You know, I often tell my friends who aren't familiar with Woodmont maybe that Woodmont has been doing international missions since before it was cool. We were, we were in on the ground floor. When I was in Guatemala a couple of years ago, uh, Bobby and Dewey Dunn said, hey, let's go to the downtown uh, government square. And I said, oh, that'd be fun, let's do it. And they said, yeah, we haven't been there since the 50s. They were there in the 1950s serving the Lord on a mission trip through Woodmont Baptist Church. How much more should we continue that legacy of missions? 
If you've never been in our uh, history and archives room, it's now called the Heritage Room, I encourage you to see it. Maybe you're a new member, maybe you're, you're visiting here. It's open between 9 and 10.30 on Sunday mornings. It's in the hallway kind of near Calvin's, across the, the hall from Calvin's uh, men's Sunday school class. It's amazing to see the pictures and the artifacts from all over the world. How many of you here have gone on an international mission trip through Woodmont Baptist Church? Wow, wow, that's a lot of you. That's a lot. Praise God for the difference that you've made in places like Sierra Leone, where we sponsor to this day 140 children so they can go to a Christian school and receive food and education. Places like Guatemala City, where we put on a medical clinic a couple years ago, where we did a VBS and construction project a couple years ago and where we sent teams in the 70s. I hear stories from Frank Orr and others about going to Guatemala after the earthquake and helping to rebuild Baptist churches in Guatemala City after the earthquake in the 70s. Places like Dominica, where 80% of the island's structures were severely damaged by Hurricane Maria. You know, I leave on Wednesday to go with four other pastors to Belarus, to Minsk. I was talking to Carol Vaughn. She said, I've been there. And uh, the Bennett's daughter's been there as well. We're gonna be training pastors who are planting churches faster than they can train their pastors on how to do church. So we're going to uh, train these young pastors. It's gonna be an exciting time. You know, these pictures and artifacts that we see in the, the Heritage Room remind us that God is at work all around the world and Woodmont has joined him in that work for years. Missions is something that we value highly here, and you can tell that by looking at our budget. You know, our, our tithes and offerings here goes towards a missions budget of over $78,000. We have a missions committee that is tasked with stewarding that money in the wisest and most effective ways. We invest this money in kingdom work annually, and that doesn't even include our, our six, now seven maybe, special offerings that we take up for designated missions offerings. In total, I think Woodmont gives somewhere between $150,000 and $200,000 annually to missions. Clearly, we value missions. But why do I say mission on our list of values here and not missions? What are we talking about here? What's the difference between missions and mission? What's the point of all these mission trips and all this money that we invest year after year in missions. Well, we know that our mission, as we just said, is to love God, to love people, and to make disciples. We know that's our mission. Surely our mission's efforts support that mission. We increase the love of God, which is worship, in places where he is not worshiped. We proclaim his goodness and his greatness to our neighbors and around the world. We love our neighbors here and around the world by hosting homeless at Room in the Inn every other Saturday, by giving free medical care to people in a third world country like Guatemala. And we make disciples when we share the gospel and we help people get connected to local churches who follow up with them and make sure they're being discipled. But our mission is, is part of something bigger. When we say we value mission here, we're actually talking about something more than missions. 
We're, we're talking about something more than even the mission that Jesus gave us in the great commandments and the great commission. We're talking about how all of this fits into the big picture of God's mission. If we're serious about our mission and doing missions, then we have to dig down to the why of it all. Why do we do these things? Why did Jesus tell us to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make disciples? Why do we give so much time and attention and resources to missions here at Woodmont? It's because it's all part of a bigger story. It's all part of a bigger plan that God is doing, that God is telling. And we get our first real glimpse of what God's up to in his mission, in God's word, in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verses one to three. It's our main text for today. So if you'll please stand in honor of the word of the Lord, if you're able to today. Dr. Hash, you get a pass, 91 today. You stay right there, that's great. The call of Abram from Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. I've taught on this text before, and I told you that I had a professor in seminary, a brilliant Old Testament scholar, authored many, many books. He said you can divide the whole Bible into two sections, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and the rest of it. It's that important. It shows us what God is up to. You know, I read a, a phrase recently that reminded me of my, my grandparents are from Texas, and they had these little, I don't know if it's a Texas thing, but they had these little witticisms, you know, these little sayings that they would just drop every now and then. Uh, and my grandmother used to always have a, a phrase, and this reminded me of like, something she would say, but if you go back far enough in your family tree, you'll find at least one horse thief. You heard that before? Y'all are from Texas, you've heard it before, yeah. If you go back far enough in your family tree, you'll find at least one horse thief. We all have a few interesting characters in our lineage, in our genealogy, if you go back far enough. We don't really think about it, but we're all in the process right now of creating our own lineage, of our own family tree. You know, it, it's crazy to think that the choices we make now and the way that we live our lives now are affecting the trajectory of those who come after us. About 4,000 years ago, there lived a idol-worshiping pagan a guy who lived in a city with a monosyllabic name somewhere in the Fertile Crescent. And one day, out of the blue, he heard the voice of the one true God of the universe, Yahweh, who spoke to him and asked him to do something that was crazy, an outlandish request. And this pagan man said yes. And that choice would affect many millions and billions of people who came after him. 
who are now part of his family lineage. How many of you grew up singing, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord, right arm. I, I never knew what that meant, you know, you start moving your arm, you know, it was just one of those silly VBS kind of songs. You people who didn't grow up in VBS are looking at me like, that's a weird song, man, why did y'all sing that? The rest of you know what I'm talking about. Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you. What are we talking about? That song is actually rooted in the fact that we as Christians living now in the year 2020 are in fact Abraham's family. How could that be? What does this Abraham, or, or Abram, as we see here in chapter 12, didn't have his name changed yet, what does this guy have to do with you or me in this context today. A lot of Christians, you know, tend to stay away from the Old Testament, tend to stay away from the, the, the first two-thirds of the Bible. We tend to think, oh, that stuff doesn't apply to us anymore. We're New Testament people. We have a new covenant out with the old. That's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible is one story. The New Testament teaches us that, yes, the, the Mosaic Covenant, the law, the Torah that was given to God's people, that that no longer applies. The Mosaic Covenant is the Old Covenant. That is true. We're not under law anymore. We're under grace. But the New Testament never says that we're done with the Abrahamic Covenant. In fact, it says the opposite. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church in Galatia. He says that we too, like Abraham, are justified, we're made right, we're reckoned righteous with God, with the holy God of the universe, by grace through faith. It's our faith, like the children just sang, that causes the Lord God, the holy God of the universe, to reckon us righteous. Look at Galatians chapter three, verse seven to nine. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons and daughters of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's those of us who are not Jewish, by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Somehow the gospel has to do with blessing of the nations. So then those who are of faith, I hope that's you and me, I know it's me, I hope it's you, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The gospel has to do with our blessing and a blessing of others. And it says that we, if we are people of faith in the Lord God, then we are blessed. Paul takes Genesis 12, one to three, and he applies it to Christians now. He says we are the children of Abraham that when God told Abraham, in you shall all the nations of the world be blessed, he meant that for us, that us Gentiles, that we would be grafted in to the people of God. This is why the Old Testament still applies to us, that we would become grafted into this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, by faith. He goes another step and he says, this is why you're blessed just like Abraham, so that you will be a blessing, that you will be a conduit of God's blessing to the world. When I taught this text previously, our uh, resident 
John Denver and part-time poet Mark Anderson uh, came up with a little slogan. I was talking about how you shouldn't, you know, hoard God's blessings like a bowl. You just pour things into and just keeps filling up, but that we should be like a sieve that God pours his blessings into and those blessings flow through us into the lives of others. And Mark, as he often does, was walking out on the south entrance and he said, don't roll like a bowl, live like a sieve. <laughs> I was like, that's great, man. We've got to get t-shirts or something. <laughs> Don't roll like a bowl, live like a sieve. Paul goes on in Galatians 3 to make the point clear that we are an Abrahamic people. Just in case you didn't get it from verses 7 to 9, look at verse 27. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, that's, I hope, you, I've been baptized into Christ. You've put on Christ. It's a new creation now. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, neither male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now here's the explicit part. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. That's pretty clear, isn't it? You're heirs of Abraham according to the promise, the Abrahamic covenant that you will be a blessing to the world. So clearly Christians are to continue the work that was given to Abraham to be a conduit of God's blessing to a lost and broken world. What does that look like? If you're like me, then you might make the mistake of just thinking about missions, right? Maybe this is just missions. Church trips to Dominica and, and Guatemala the offerings that we take for Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong, the, the International Mission Board and the Foreign Mission Board. I'm, in Belarus, we're working with an IMB missionary in Minsk the whole time. He just sent me the itinerary yesterday. Maybe you think of long-term missionaries in, in Africa, like the Dysons or the, the Owenses, or maybe you think of missionaries in Latin America, like the Bennetts were, or like the Titchener's were in Europe with the IMB. Let me suggest this. It's kind of narcissistic to think of the idea of our mission as primary. We're looking inward. What is our mission? We tend to do this. We read the Bible and we say, where am I in here? Because we're narcissists at heart. Chris Wright, the great missiologist, has said that we need to go one step further back and ask, whose mission is it anyway? It's not our mission? It's God's mission. What is God's mission? Wright has this great quote. It's not so much the case that God has a mission for the church in the world. That's how we tend to think of it. Oh, God has a, a plan for me. It's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission. God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. That's a, a very much needed corrective in my own theology and what I assume is most of yours as well. We're only here to play our part in God's mission. We're only here to be a part of what he's doing. We gotta remember that first and foremost. So the question that we should be asking about mission isn't, what is our mission, but what is God's mission? I've given you six re-words. If you want to grab a pencil or a pen 
uh, and fill this in. You know, if you don't want to, that's fine too. You can just sit and listen. But what is God's mission? What is God's plan? What is he up to? How can we be a part of it if we don't know what it is? Ephesians 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, tell us this amazing privilege that we have. It says in verse 9 that God has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. That means when the time was ripe to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has now, in his grace, revealed to you and to me the formerly hidden mystery of his will, of his purpose, of his plan. You see all three of those words there. That in the fullness of time, he would bring back that which was lost in the fall of creation that he would do the work of reclaiming that which was broken during the fall. Now this might be a little didactic for a sermon, but I hope you'll bear with me as we look at these six words to understand what the mission of God is all about. It's more than just one verse, it's more than just one word can do, but I hope these six words will give you a big picture of what God is up to. We don't have time to go through all the scriptures that are in your weekly, but I I pray you'll take it home and look those verses up and dig deeper into what God's mission is. If we're going to get Woodmont's mission right, we've got to understand what God's mission is. So first, the mission of God, the first blank is, it's a great reversal. It's a reversal. In C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you may remember how the true king of Narnia, the, the great lion king Aslan, takes poor young Edmund's place. Edmund messes up and the witch says, gotcha. The white witch says, you have to die now because of your sin, because you've messed up. And Aslan says, no, he doesn't. I'll take his place. And the white witch says, great, I've won. I'm gonna take over Narnia now. I get to kill Aslan. And he's shaved and he's tied to the great stone table and he's sacrificed there on the altar. Lucy and Susan Pevensey, the the girls, of course, go to find him after he's executed, and he's not there. And the the stone table is cracked in half, and they say, what in the world happened? And here's what Lewis says. Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. But if she could have looked a little further back, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. That's a great reversal. The death itself would work backwards. Lewis's good friend and part of his Inklings group, J.R.R. Tolkien, wrote something similar in The Lord of the Rings. After Gandalf shows back up after passing through fire and shadow. He appears to Sam and the little hobbit cries out, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but I thought then that I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Gandalf says a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam 
that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. Through Christ, God is working everything bad into good. God is going to make everything sad come untrue. Death itself is now working backwards. The gospel is about this great reversal. Since Christ died and rose again, everything sad is coming untrue, and it'll somehow be greater than it ever was before because it has been broken and lost and now redeemed. Which brings us to our second word. The gospel is about redemption. You recognize that picture? You've seen that before? It's at, you know, Logan, Leslie, where is that? The Brentwood Skate Center. Yeah, the Brentwood Skate Center. We spend a few Saturdays there uh, with our kids. What do you do when you, you get all your tickets from all the games there that cost a fortune, and you take your tickets, and you go to the redemption counter? Why do you go to the Is that counter preaching the gospel? Do they have Bibles there and, and preachers? No. It's about redeeming your tickets, because to redeem something means to exchange one thing for another. It means to take something that you've received and to exchange it for something else. Redemption is a prominent word in Scripture. Some form of the word redemption appears 151 times in the English Standard Version. To redeem something means, again, that you buy something back, that you exchange one thing for another. You redeem a coupon at the grocery store for 50 cents off a can of soup. God redeems his creation through the exchange, the beautiful exchange Martin Luther called it, of taking all of our sin and shame, the sin of the world, upon himself and giving to us his beautiful, perfect righteousness, his perfection that only he could achieve. You know, the prophet Isaiah foretold of a day when God would do this great redemption. Look at Isaiah chapter 44, verse 22. It'll be on the screen. I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me. This is a Linton verse. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. I've paid the price that you couldn't pay. It sounds like the prodigal son, doesn't it? The, the son says, I can't go back. God says, come home. The son says, I can't. I've squandered everything. My dad's going to kill me. Instead, his good father stands with open arms and says, I've redeemed you. Our good father welcomes us back every time. Sing, O heavens, verse 23, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, every tree in it. All creation is affected by sin. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, his special people, and will be glorified in Israel. The Lord has bought back his people. That's part of the mission of God, to bring back the scattered children of his own and to gather them together all by his grace and for his glory. Third word, the mission of God is restoration. You know, restoration hardware just down the road. There's lots of uh, TV shows on HGTV about home restoration. Some of you have been on those shows. The Newtons were on this old house. You know, the restoration is about taking something that has fallen into disrepair and making it beautiful again. That's part of the mission of God. That word, again, is very prominent in Scripture. The word restore appears 133 times in the Bible. 
Remember that when God created the universe, he stepped back from it on the sixth day and pronounced it was what? Very good. There was no death. There was no sin in all of a very good creation. We know that didn't last long, that Adam and Eve sinned and chose their way over God's and plunged all of the creation into death and darkness and decay. But the promise we have is that one day it will be even better than the Garden of Eden. It will be completely restored to perfection. Look at what the prophet Jeremiah promises to God's people in Jeremiah 33, verse 7. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them. It's a home restoration project. I will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. That's God's plan, to restore this place all through Jesus Christ. Fourth, the mission of God is about renewal. That's the whole death working backwards thing. It's about us growing younger, not like Benjamin Button, but we're growing younger on the inside spiritually, even though outwardly we're wasting away. Look at 2 Corinthians verse 4, verse 16. So we don't lose heart. How many of you here are discouraged today? Don't raise your hands. How many of you need to hear this? Don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, Bert was telling me about his legs not working like they used to. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. We're born again into a living hope, 1 Peter 1. We're born again to a resurrection. We're awaiting a day when our glorified bodies will be made complete. Andrew Peterson has a great song that says, when the world is new again, and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again. I've heard many of you say, oh, I, I remember 25, or I can't even remember being 18. We're going to be teenagers again. <laughs> it says, maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken than redeemed by love. Maybe this old world is bent, but it's waking up, and I'm waking up. Fifth, God's mission is recreation. Not recreation, okay? Recreation. At the end of the Bible, John the Revelator, we spent a year in the Gospel of John, the same guy is an old man, he's on the island of Patmos, and he gets a vision from the Lord about the end, the end of the story. And he shares with us what he saw. Look at Revelation 21, verse 4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He's recreating this world into something new. A new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, married together as one place where we will spend eternity with our Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning with him forever. That's where the mission is heading. Finally, God's mission is about reconciliation. To reconcile means to make whole, to put back together in the right way. Colossians 1, verse 19 says, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what does this mean? What does all this mean for us today? It means we have a job to do. Our mission flows from God's mission. Chris Wright says, everything a Christian and a Christian church is, says, and does should be missional in its conscious participation in the mission of God in God's world. Everything we do, the way we eat, the way we spend our money, the way we dress, the way we work, the way we worship, the way we play, all should help serve God's mission of renewal and restoration. Many of you know the story of Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint. I don't have time to tell you about it now, but you should go look it up. The short version is these five men felt called to go and evangelize a, a tribe in Ecuador of, of, of native uh, Latin Americans. And these five men ended up being speared to death on the riverbank uh, by the tribe that they were going to share the gospel with. You know the story, Jim's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, and Nate's sister, Rachel Saint, went back into the jungle and raised their families there. And many of those Waldani people became Christians and ended up being elders in the Waldani church there and ended up baptizing Nate Saint's son, Steve Saint. I got to hear him speak at my divinity school. And he said, our practice of sending a few highly specialized troops to fight the enemy while leaving the vast majority of Christians out of the spiritual battle is not the great commission. It's the great omission. We're all called to be missionaries. We're all called to be on mission for God in every day and every way. Will you play your part in God's redemptive plan for creation? Will you allow everything you are, say, and do to help further his mission? Will Woodmont be a church that is missional in every aspect of who we are? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have shown us what you're up to. God, we just want to do like the old experiencing God study says. We just want to join you in what you're up to so that we can be a part of your mission. It's why we're here, God. Even the, the mission that, that you gave us to love you and to love our neighbors and to make disciples is part of your mission. That when we do these things, we help bring about your kingdom. God, I know that we've prayed the Lord's Prayer so many times and we've said, Lord, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But forgive us for praying that prayer passively. Help us to remember that we have a part to play in that prayer, that we don't just pray it and sit back and wait for you to do it, but that your plan is to do it through us, your church. God, I pray that you would use us. I pray that you would fill us up and send us out, that we would not be a part of the great omission, but we would each be a part of the great commission, that we would play our part in using the gifts, the talents, the time, the treasure that you've given us to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth like it is in heaven. In Nashville and around the world, oh God, that's our heart's desire. May we truly be a missional church. We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom you are making all things new. Amen.
We're going to have a time of response. Um, I'm going to ask if Trey and, and Brad will come. I think Jan's out of town today. I'm going to ask Morgan if you'll come stand up here too. Um, if, if you want Rachel, if you'll come up too. That'd be great. If you want to pray with one of these prayer warriors, they'll be here to receive you. Like I said, we all have something that we need prayer for. Uh, the altar will be open too. Maybe you just have something on your heart and you just want someone to intercede for you. Uh, maybe you want to join with my Baptist church as a member and you say, I'm in. Mission and vision values, I need to be a part of this. We're not a perfect church, and guess what? You won't find one anywhere because every church is full of people and we're broken. We need Jesus. That's why we're here. If you want to be a part of us and, and be on journey with us, we'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you want to be baptized. Maybe you've never been baptized by immersion and you're ready to follow Jesus' example of being immersed, dying to yourself, and being raised into a whole new kind of life with him. Maybe you've never surrendered your life in the first place to Jesus Christ, and you say, I need to give all that I am uh, to Jesus Christ, and you want to surrender to him today and become a Christian for the first time. Whatever it is you need to do during this time, I ask you to stand. We're going to sing. We're called to be God's people. Let's stand and sing it like you mean it.